Do babies have a natural instinct to sleep? Getting a better understanding of what my partner needed and what my children really needed, that's made a huge difference. Yes, yeah. otherwise I can get a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I think lots of parents can relate yeah. to that. You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt. Yumi Steins is a TV and radio presenter. You'll hear her on Kiss FM's 3pm Pickup or on the ABC radio podcast, Ladies We Need to Talk. She's also the mum of four kids and the author of two cookbooks. Yumi is a busy woman, <laughs> which may be why her latest book is called Zero F's Cooking Endless Summer. We are saying zero F's because this is a G-rated program, but I'm sure you can imagine what that stands for. Um, Yumi, welcome to Kindling Conversation. Thank you, Chef. It's not like you've got spare time on your hands. <laughs> no. So why write a cookbook? I did have some spare time when I took a couple of years off to have my last two babies and the whole time I was cooking for the entire family and really time poor. But the thing is, I've always really loved to cook. In fact, I was a cook like in commercial kitchens and pub kitchens for a few years before I started in the media. Um, So I've always been really interested in it. But as I had more and more children, I had to streamline my cooking to be quicker and quicker and more efficient and uh, and feed more people. Uh, It doesn't mean I don't like food any less or more. I I just have to uh, really just make it very, very achievable. So I started posting pictures of my family meals online um, and people were quite interested and were asking quite specific questions. Like they wanted help to make this food and make it simply. And I was struck actually by the gap between what celebrity chefs do in fancy top end restaurants and what um, home cooks do. There's a huge, huge expanse of ignorance, really. <laughs> a lot of people don't know how to boil an egg or, you know, make a pizza. And, and chefs showing you how to do something with cod roe or truffle <laughs> or something, it's really just beyond what people want to do for their families at home. So I thought, why don't I just start um, kind of playing around in this area? And that's where the zero F's cooking thing started. Yeah. Okay. But let's be fair to you and your workload. You you had a few years off to have kids, which which is when you wrote the first one. So there's zero F's cooking and now there's endless summer, which you've just released. You can't have done endless summer while you were off having your babies. That's true. You just mentioned one of them's going to school next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the babies is off to big school. Oh, crazy. Yeah, I know. Um, I I was so inspired by the experience of doing the first book, Zero F's Cooking, um, that before it had even gone to print, I'd started writing down recipes and testing new recipes for the second book. And I had a much better idea of how to test a recipe, what sort of processes you need to go through, how to actually write a recipe. So when I was doing it the first time I didn't understand that you need to describe to the reader what it will look like after you've cooked it for 10 minutes you know they might need to have an explanation of what a simmer will be in this particular curry or 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 that kind of thing so with the second one I I understood the art of it and I couldn't wait to just jump (laughs) in and also I just thought you know just just be amazing you know kick some goals write a second book why not try your, your absolute best And that's what this book is, The uh, Endless Summer, which you are concentrating on summer Mm. foods. Before we get to it, though, I have some more questions because I'm fascinated in your life (laughs) with your four children and your multiple jobs and your beautiful cookbooks and food. What does dinner time look like in your house? Because you've got two younger kids, Mm. two teenagers, your partner. How does that all work at the dinner table? Well, it, it does. There's a lot of food on the floor, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, and on mushed into the couch. And, you know, it's a pretty humble house. We, we um, It's it's user-friendly, shall we say. <laughs> but we do it really early. So I think that's probably something that a lot of people couldn't countenance, you know, eating at sort of 5.30, 6 p.m. every night. The, the big girls, my two teenagers, they love 
my cooking and they're really into my current sort of bent for food, which is heaps and heaps of veggies. Like we have heaps of salad and heaps of veggies and maybe a little bit of meat, but it's not sort of the centerpiece. The babies, on the other hand, I don't know where they came from. They are not adventurous eaters. And this is like the first time I've had to deal with this because my first two were great eaters. These kids are so picky and they don't like lots of things. So we do have a simple kind of mac and cheese on high rotation, sausages on high rotation. And we kind of eat around that. Like we don't want mac and cheese five nights a week. No. Or sausages. Yeah. So we sort of like make our own and make a bit extra for those guys. But I get the sense as well that um, – Food and entertaining and what happens around the dinner table is really important to you. Yeah, we never have the TV on during dinner and rarely do we have music. We just want, kind of want to talk and there's a fair bit of shouting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's always been like that. I've just I've never been into having the TV on while the, while the meal is being consumed and I, I like to use it as a chance to really look at everyone in my family and, and hear them and what they've got to say. And I think that that extends to my, my friends and my my wider family I've always had this fantasy that I'd have a house where like a salon you know like a, <laughs> yes. in, in France in, in 1960 or something where people just drop by and it's a place to hang and feel comfortable and there's no sort of ticking clock oh, I should probably go or you know I should ring before I turn up I just want people to feel really welcome and so part of that is having something that I can offer them. It doesn't have to be, you know, so fancy. It can just be really humble but very thoughtful. So I know all my friends' allergies. I know their kids' allergies. I, I try and cook things that, that don't, you know, create gastric upsets, you know, um, too, cha- too, much kind of you. <laughs> too much of a challenge. But just to know that, um, that my love is expressed through a, a small offering I might put in front of them. Um, I think it's just really, really simple and, and a really, and really pure. And I love the, the reciprocity of that is that them eating that is like, you know, and their company and them feeling comfortable to sit with me. That's, it's such a generous gift as well. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm speaking with Yumi Steins. She's the author of Zero F's Cooking, Endless Summer. It's the second of two books, two cookbooks that Yumi has written. And as we discussed, it's kind of come out of her being a very, very busy woman with four children of her own, plus all the work that she does in radio and TV. Um, I want to ask you about a few of the specific things in this book, because it is for summer and you have catered it to summer. Talk to me about barbecuing. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of barbecue in both of the books, actually. So when I was pregnant with Mercy, my four-year-old, I couldn't stand the smell of food. And I think a lot of women can relate to that. Just the food being cooked in my house and it would sort of hang in the ceiling, like it would hang this cloud. <laughs> and so I cooked outside a lot on the deck where we've got a, a little barbecue set up with a gas bottle and stuff. And I became excellent at barbecuing. I feel very confident on the barbecue. I know sort of the hot spots, the cold spots, you know, what, how long to cook things for. Um, so there's a lot of whole fish that I do on the barbecue, lots of meat and, and lots and lots of veggies on the barbecue. For instance, one of the recipes in the first book is just basically zucchini. Mm. The ingredients are zucchini. <laughs> That's the whole thing. That's the whole entire thing. So, barbecue um, zucchini. Yeah, Yum. you just split it down the, the middle um, to, to be a long sausage and then you just um, grill it on the barbecue, both sides, and give it a lot of time so that it can really soften and it gets all sort of hot and molten. The natural flavours of the sort of char and the, the vegetable and the barbecue all c- kind of come out and it's a really simple way to eat it. But if you're having that with, you know, a bunch of chops or a beautiful salad, some fish or something, it's a really great, you know, side as well. Um, so that that sort of like barbecuing is 
It's a really simple way to add heat and flavour without actually having to add too much fussing like marinades or any of that kind of stuff. Mm. So barbecue is a big section of the book. There are some specific recipes I'm intrigued about. Yep. Um, I'm going to say this wrong. I've tried pronouncing it with Elise, <laughs> our producer. What is onigiri? Is that onigiri. Onigiri. Yeah. Oh, she's, Elise tried to tell me how to do it. It was <laughs> never going to work. So how, what is this? Well, onigiri is just a Japanese word for rice ball, basically. Right. Yeah. So I know you've been to Japan. Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, sorry. I would like to. Well, in, in Japan, if you go to a Seven Eleven or what, mm. what they call kombini, convenience stores, there's there's always rows and rows of onigiri that you can just buy, and it's almost like a sandwich. Like it's got that very utilitarian, functional, very humble kind of just grab and go and eat kind of vibe in Japan. And like a sandwich, you can fill it with all different kinds of things. So it's really up to your taste. So in my cookbook, I explain how to make onigiri and um, and some of the different fillings that I like to put in it. But it is such a great food because you just I just use leftover rice. I don't cook rice specifically for it and then stuff it with something that I like. So I like, for instance, umeboshi plum which is really good for gut health. It's one of it's going to be the next fad food. <laughs> trust me, trust me. Um, you heard it here. Yeah, or some t- tinned tuna and a bit of a squirt of kewpie mayonnaise or some sort of kimchi or something. You can just put anything you want inside and then eat it at your desk. It's got very low allergies, you know, it's not no gluten or any, any of that stuff. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great food. It's perfect for just going to work, grabbing mm. and going to work. And what is the goddess loaf? <gasps> you call something that, I've got high expectations. Right. Okay. Well, I haven't made this one for a while, but it, it's it's basically a mixture of um, some of my favorite ingredients. So one thing that I do cook a lot with is ricotta cheese. Um, it's just, you know, it's got lots of calcium and protein in it, and I find it very easy to digest, where some dairy food is a bit tough on the tummy, especially if you're Asian or African descent. Um the goddess loaf just kind of uses things that go really well with that. So we're talking pistachios, um, herbs. I think it's cinnamon inside. Mm, mm, um, and I and I feel when you when you eat it, it's so godly. Like it's sort of all these yummy things that make you kind of swoon and make your head sway. Really easy to make. It lasts for ages in the fridge. So on day three, it's still really moist and really good. Like you still have that sort of <laughs> oh, feeling about it. So my idea is that if you can make it, you are a goddess. Perfect. And of course, because this is zero F's cooking, everyone can do it. Totally. It's, it's not going to be hard. Yeah. The other thing about not being hard that I'm intrigued about, mm. it looks like you have an eggplant dish in this cookbook that's fail-proof. Now, I love eggplant. Right. And my family can attest, I have tried to cook it several times and have always failed. It oh, no. It has always been discussed. There was one eggplant moussaka, which was extremely disappointing <laughs> because it took me about four hours to make and then we were all oh, eating it going. Oh, no. What was wrong with it? Was it not cooked enough? It's just that sour taste, that bitter taste of the eggplant. Uh, okay, so eggplant is a tricky one because you can get the you know that really astringent bitterness to it. So I've read extensively on this because I didn't want to give anyone a bum steer. And a lot of people will say that in Australia, it's, those kinds of eggplants have pretty much been excluded from the farming process. So it's hard to even get a nasty eggplant. Most mm. of the ones that you can buy don't have that element anymore. They might have in the past, but they right. don't anymore. But I'm not completely convinced of this <laughs> because I've had them recently that tasted like that. And I think it's to do with the age of the eggplant. Right. So the longer it's been hanging on the vine, the tougher the skin gets and the seeds inside get darker and more bitter. So if you feel the eggplant when you're in the store and it feels silky and it like it's got a fair bit of give, 
give that a go. Right. If it feels woody, so that's the word I look for when I'm holding that eggplant and just giving it a little squeeze with my fingertips. If it's woody, no, it's, it might it might not, but it might have that nastiness to it. <laughs> it, was, it was so disappointing. Yeah. I almost cried. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> because that, of course, was going to be like the third meal I was cooking anyway because the kids weren't going to touch it. Right. I just made it because I wanted to. Uh, but what's your eggplant thing? It's very thin. Yeah. Easy. Yep. Okay, so picture you've got one good eggplant, about 500 grams, right? Just a, pretty much a regular eggplant. And you've got a pizza dish, so a circular tray dish. You slice up the eggplant as thinly as you can. Get the oven on hot, really thin, like paper thin. And then you run the eggplant around the ring of the tray. Maybe line it first with a bit of baking paper. I find that easier. Lined uh, and then run the rings around with a, with a, a circle of olive oil. Yep. And then brush the oil over the top and then pour half a jar of like tomato passata or tomato like wet sauce mm-hmm. all right and then repeat with the remaining eggplant another the, the remaining half of the jar on top and then some parmesan or whatever kind of cheese a nice woody sort of tasty cheese on the top grind of salt and pepper and stick it in the oven and that's all you have to do oh. Love it. Yeah. If you can't slice thinly, mm. it, it might not work as well. And if you're worried about the um, chewiness of, because I don't mind it a bit chewy, then a bit of extra olive oil on top. Okay. Well, mm. I might have to try it. I might go around and squeeze a few eggplants first. Then. <laughs> <laughs> and look, finally, because it's that time of year. Christmas pudding ice creams. Oh, what is this I'm thing? I'm so thrilled that you asked me about this because I'm super pleased with this. You know, when we were shooting the um, the cookbook, I had a stylist, um, a fantastic woman who's done just countless cookbooks and also, you know, magazines, food sort of magazines, plus a, a cookbook editor who's done hundreds of cookbooks, plus the photographer, right? And they were all just pigging out on all the food. <laughs> I was like, why do you, why aren't you guys humongous? Because there is a lot of food and you guys are putting it away. And they said, we never, ever usually eat the food. <gasps> um, so I said, why not? And they said, well, it's just not this yummy usually. <laughs> I think like the, the, the absolute humility of the, of the food, the humbleness of it. It just makes it really accessible. And the Christmas pudding ice cream is a really good example. So all you have to do is think a bit posh. So Christmas Day, you're trying to do the best that you can. You're trying to pay for the best possible goods that you can. So in this case, buy the best vanilla ice cream you can afford. Okay. So have that out of the ki- out of the freezer and on your kitchen bench and then get a Christmas pudding from the shop. Again, the best you can afford, but this one doesn't matter so much. So just mm-hmm. get a good Christmas pudding or Christmas cake. Then you need a, um, like, you know, a muffin tray. Yeah. So what you're going to do is you're going to slice discs of the cake or the pudding in uh, from, the, from the original that will fit onto the far end, like the top end of your muffin tray. Mm-hmm. And then, so you need six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yep, for the muffin tray. And then the remaining pudding, chop it up into little bits, sort of almost dice it or mush it up, mm-hmm. and then toss that through the ice cream with some mixed spice, like that clove cinnamon kind of mix. If you're into it, a tablespoon of rum, you know, uh-huh. the alcohol, because that's got that kind of Christmassy flavor, right? Yeah. Cloves, rum, cinnamon, nutmeg, and then mush it through. So the ice cream will start to take on a sort of a brownie color because it's got the mushed up pudding through it. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to um, spray the um, muffin tin. You're going to mush the ice cream into the tin, enough oh. for six portions, right? Yeah. And then you're going to top it with that little disc of 
pudding that you sliced earlier and squash it in so it sits nice and neat in the tray and then stick it in the freezer and that is going to be your Christmas pudding ice cream. So on Chris, that can just sit there. You can do that today and it will sit there till Christmas Day. Christmas Day comes and you're like, sweet, I don't have to sweat, everything's prepared. <laughs> so then you pop the ice creams out, you invert them so that the um, cake is on the bottom and the ice cream is on top and then you pour custard over it and top it with a cherry. So it looks really super Yum. festive, but it's been so easy. And you can even yes. use bought custard, which is what we did on the day for the shoot. Oh goodness. Yeah. I think I might have to just whip that one up for Christmas. <laughs> my family would die. I never cook at Christmas because I'm so bad at it. Yumi, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. That's Yumi Steins. She's the author of Zero F's Cooking Endless Summer. It's available now. Head to our website for details. You've been listening to Kindling Conversation. If you enjoyed it, there's plenty more where that came from. Find other stories and interviews at our website. Just head to kindling.com.au.